It's always a great time to have a time of worship and reflection and set our hearts, you know, as we get into God's Word. And the songs that we kind of chose this week have a connection with the message that we're going to be talking about. And when we get to the ending part of the message, we will see how important that name really is uh, as Peter addresses the crowd uh, in the first gospel message ever preached and the power behind it. Uh, It's not the words that Peter, but it's the power behind those words. So as we look into this morning's message, I just want to make a little review of last week. Oh, kids, that's right. Sorry. Kids, you're dismissed. Is there any kids here? Okay. Very good. All right. So last week, uh, just a quick review. Uh, We looked at Acts chapter 1, as you know. Uh, Went through the whole chapter and just kind of give you a brief outline there. It's on the top of your outline that you have here this morning. That uh, at first we talked in verses 1 and 2 of the continuation of God's work in connection with uh, the gospel of Luke uh, that he sets out in the first four verses and then recaptures again in the book of Acts. Uh, Secondly, we looked at the proofs in verse 3, the witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Third, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the Father's promise that was coming in verse 4. Verses 5 through 8 was the power, the anticipation of the receiving of the Holy Spirit as they waited uh, for that time to come. Then we have the parting, which is the final time everybody saw Jesus on this earth is when he ascended into heaven. And as they said, you will see him return in like manner. Uh, Next, we have the prayer. We have the replacement of Judas uh, with the uh, selection of Matthias and the way they went about the process, uh, the way he was chosen to become uh, part of the 11, now number 12, and how that all fleshed out in the process that they uh, looked at according to how God wanted them to do this to get to that point of picking Matthias. And finally, we have that process, the actual choosing of Matthias and so forth. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at the second chapter of Acts. And remember I said in the first, in the book of Acts, there's a lot of firsts that take place. Well, the second chapter of Acts is is also a chapter of firsts that are going to take place. And we're going to go through that. But as I was preparing the message this last week, I came across an article that talked about some great men of our past centuries that were great preachers. And I was reading about the great old preachers of the 17, 18, 1900s. And I was reading about Whitfield, who was a man of God and a a powerful preacher, if you remember. Whitfield preached in Bristol to 20,000 people regularly, often daily. Sometimes when Whitfield got up in the morning, there'd be 10,000 people outside waiting for him to begin. That's amazing. Imagine, Steve, if you had 5,000 people outside your front door. (laughs) I know. Often he preached to 40,000 people. It is said that he preached to as many as 50 to 100,000 people in Glasgow, Scotland. Now this was without any preparation. This was without any publicity. This is just people drawn to the power, not of the preacher, but of the word. That's what they were drawn to. And this is without a microphone. We have the convenience of having our voices amplified, but could you imagine speaking to that many people? He must have had an incredible voice to be heard. He sometimes was accused of rambling in his sermons and getting off point. And I guess if you preach that many times per day to that many people, you might get a little sideways. But he was was talked about as being a rambler, but he said, if men will continue to ramble like lost sheep, I'll continue to ramble after them. (laughs) At 70 70 years old, George Mueller preached regularly to 5,000 people. Moody, Spurgeon, Edwards, and Finney, and alike, preached and taught to thousands of people in great crowds in the Great Awakenings. But these men were not driven by themselves, but by the power of the Spirit. 
These men are all had an impressive example, preached the truth of God's word, which was originally birthed in the book of Acts by the apostle Peter. None of the men and men who came after would have the impact that Peter had at that time. And we are reminded by that gospel message of the importance of why we gather together as a church. When we look back at that particular point in time, there was no church to say. There was a group of people. But upon hearing the word of God, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the church was birthed and began. Lord, I thank you this morning for your word. I thank you, Father, for giving us this word that we hold in our hands. Lord, we can refer to it anytime we need. But more than that, Lord, it's the power of your word, just given by the Holy Spirit, that breaks through and touches hearts. I pray this morning that your word would be elevated and lifted up, that your spirit, Lord, would have the power to penetrate the hearts and the ears that are listening this morning. That, Father, that you, they would walk in, they would leave different than when they walked out this morning. So thank you, Father, for, for this time. We ask you to bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you look at your outline in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we're going to cover the pouring out of the Spirit. Acts 2, 5 through 13 is the predicament of the languages. 14 through 36 is the proclamation of the gospel. 37 to 42 is the pronouncement for repentance. And finally, 43 to 47, the people of salvation, the church. When the day of Pentecost arrived, and I'm starting to read verses 1 through 4, they were all together in one place. And suddenly they came from heaven, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. The day of Pentecost was a Jewish feast held day, 50 days after Passover. It celebrated the first fruits of the wheat harvest. In the Jewish rituals and of the time, the first bundle reaped from barley was the harvest that was presented to God during Passover. But at Pentecost, the first fruits of the wheat harvest were presented to God. Therefore, Pentecost is called the day of first fruits, according to Numbers 28. Jewish tradition also taught that Pentecost marked the day when the law was given to Israel. And the Jews sometimes called Pentecost Zaman Matan Torah, or the season of giving the law. The Old Testament day of Pentecost, Israel received the law. On this new day of Pentecost, the church received the Holy Spirit. It was one of the best attended and the greatest feasts because of the traveling conditions at that time. There was never more a more multinational gathering in Jerusalem than this particular time. And Leviticus 23, 15-22 gives the original instructions for the celebration of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, it was now ten days after the time Jesus ascended into heaven. And ten days since Jesus commanded them to wait for the coming of the Spirit. And the disciples were not strangers to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. The disciples saw on many occasions how the Holy Spirit worked in the ministry of Jesus himself. The disciples experienced somewhat and something of the power of the Spirit as they stepped out to serve God. In Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through, we see the sending out of the 70. And we see that they were given certain power through the Spirit to minister at that time. Also, the disciples heard Jesus' promise of the new coming work of the Holy Spirit in John 14, 15 through 18. It said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will speak, ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells within you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you again. John 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, 
Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when, they had, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from them, it is withheld. The disciples received the Holy Spirit in a new way after Jesus finished his work on the cross and instituted this new covenant in his blood. They heard Jesus command them to wait for a promised baptism of the Holy Spirit that would empower them to be witnesses. So they waited until the day of Pentecost had fully come. But they did not know ahead of time how long it would be and how long they would have to wait. It would have been easy for them to assume it would come the same afternoon Jesus ascended. Maybe three days later, but certainly seven days. But they waited a full ten days until the day had fully come. What does this passage tell us about the gift of the Holy Spirit? First, the gift of the Holy Spirit is truly a gift. The gift of the Holy Spirit was promised to them and is promised to us as believers. The gift of the Holy Spirit would be worth the wait. And the gift of the Holy Spirit comes as He wills, and usually not according to our own expectations. What this passage does not tell us about the gift of the Holy Spirit, it does not say the gift of the Holy Spirit is given according to some formula or ritual. The gift of the Holy Spirit is given according to some tradition or practice some learned behavior or some conditions met. It does not say that we can earn the gift of the Holy Spirit. Its origin is from God and not by anything that we can do. They were gathered together, sharing the same heart, the same love for God, the same trust in His promise, and gathered in the same location together. They recognized that they did not have the resources within themselves to do what they could do. Or should do. They had to rely on a supernatural work from God. Verse 2 says, Suddenly a sound came from heaven like a rushing violent wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. The association of sound of a rushing mighty wind filling the whole house with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is definitely unusual. But it probably has the connection with the fact that in both Hebrew and Greek languages, the word spirit is in Holy Spirit is a similar word to breath or wind. Here the sound from heaven was the sound of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the disciples. The sound of this swift, mighty wind would make any of these men and women who knew the Hebrew Scriptures think of the presence of the Holy Spirit going back to the very beginning. In the book of Genesis, chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form or void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, or the breath of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed man from dust to the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This single line tells us much about how the Holy Spirit moves. Suddenly, unexpectedly, quickly, swiftly like the wind. With sound, it was real, though it could not be seen or touched. And they heard it from heaven. It was not from earth. It was not created or manipulated or man-made. And it came with might and power, full of force, coming with great authority. And then verse 3 says, And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. These divided tongues as fire appearing over each one of them were also unusual. It relates when John the Baptist prophesied that Jesus would baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire in Matthew 3. The idea behind the picture of fire is usually for purification. As a refiner uses fire to make pure gold. Or fire can burn away what is temporary, leaving only what will last. This example of fire pictures that the filling of the Holy Spirit is not just for, Im for immaterial power, but also for purity. 
Fire was also used to show God's power over any other gods in judgment. In 1 Kings 18, 38 to 40, we have the, the story of the altar at Baal. And it says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, licked up all the water that was in the trench. Now, if you remember, they kept saying, put everything you can on this altar, and God's going to take care of it. So they overdid it to make a point. And when, he, when all the people saw it, that God had licked up all the water and everything in it, they looked up and they said, truly the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Fire was also used to draw attention to his presence. If you recall in Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush. When Moses was called by God. Also in Exodus 13, verse 21 and 22, we have the pillar of fire by night to guide and warm the nation of Israel as they traveled through the desert. Fire represented God's power and presence, but also God's judgment. The experience of the followers of Jesus at Pentecost is another example of God sending fire from heaven to show his presence and his power. But this time it descended on those faithful believers in that upper room that were all together. And this fire sat and rested on each one of them. And this word sat has a marked uh, force in the Testament. It carries the idea of a complete preparation and a certain permanence or position. Under the old covenant, the, old, the Holy Spirit rested on God's people more as a nation, that is Israel, and a few certain individual, individuals that were chosen by God. But under the new covenant, the Holy Spirit not only rests upon God's people as individuals, but more significantly, indwelt them personally. This unique occurrence had never happened before and would never happen again in like manner in the pages of our scriptures, but was given at this specific time to emphasize the point that the Spirit of God was present with upon and within each person that was gathered in that upper room. And it says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Essentially, the rushing mighty wind and the tongues of fire were unusual and temporary, but the true gift was the filling of the Holy Spirit. While it would be wrong to expect a rushing mighty wind and tongues of fire to this present day when the Holy Spirit is poured out, we can experience the true gift. We just as they can be filled with the Holy Spirit when we are truly born again. The filling also described in Galatians. In chapter 3 verse 2 it says, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In five sixteen and 17 it says, But I say walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is different than the filling of the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is the sovereign single act from God's hand at salvation, whereas the filling of the Holy Spirit is continuous in our sanctification. The disciples were filled in fulfillment of a promise. They were filled as they received in faith. They waited they were filled in God's timing 10 days after the ascension. They were filled as they were gathered together in unity and in prayer. And they were filled in an unusual way. They were able to speak in languages that weren't their own. John 16, 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So next, we have the predicament. And I'm going to read verses 5 through 13 so we get the context. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius, Asia, Phrygia, Palamphria, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues of what? The mighty works of God. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking, saying, they're filled with new wine. Well, in response to the filling of the Holy Spirit, those present began to speak in other languages. And like it says, these were languages that they were never taught. They never spoke before, but now are speaking them fluently and understandably as the Spirit gave them the utterance. Devout men from every nation under heaven, the multitude from many nations had gathered during this time for the Feast of Pentecost. Many of these were the same people who gathered in Jerusalem weeks before saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And then a week later, we're crying, crucify him, crucify him. This is the same mob. When this sound occurred, a crowd quickly gathered, being attracted by the sound, which was either the sound of rushing mighty wind or the sound of other languages being spoken. When the crowd came, they heard these new believers speaking in their own foreign languages. Apparently, these believers possibly could be heard from the windows of the upper room or may have gone out into some kind of balcony or into the courtyard. Not many homes of that day could hold 120 people. It's more likely that the upper room was part of the temple courts, which was a huge structure with porches and colonnades and rooms. And possibly the crowd came from people milling about in these courts. We hear them speaking in our own tongues of what? The wonderful works of God. This is what the crowd heard these people speak about. From this remarkable event, all were amazed and perplexed. And some used it as a means of honest inquiry, asking, what could this mean? Others accused it and dismissed it and mocked it and said, wow, they're full of wine. Verse 7 says, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? People from Galilee were known to be uncultured, poor speakers, working class citizens with limited educations. This was all the more reason to be impressed with their ability to speak eloquently in other languages. One commentator writes, most Galileans had difficulty pronouncing certain words and had a habit of mixing words when speaking. So they were looked down upon the people of Jerusalem as being local, rustic, and somewhat uneducated. When the question is asked, what could this mean? What are we to make of this unusual expression of these many different languages that are being spoken and understood? Speaking in tongues has been a focal point and significant controversy in the church age, as we know. People still ask that same question for these bystanders asked on the day of Pentecost. There is no controversy that God at least one time gave the church the gift of languages, but much of the controversy centers around the question, what is God's purpose in the gift of tongues? Steve taught some last year in the book of 1 Corinthians, and I'll just quote from chapter 14, 21 and 22. It says, in the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to these people. And even then, I will not list, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. These tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers, 
and as a means to miraculous communication to the gospel. Notice what the people heard the disciples say they were speaking about. They were speaking about the wonderful works of God. When tongues is practiced in a corporate setting of the church, it must be carefully controlled and orderly, and never without interpretation given by the Holy Spirit. However, in Jerusalem, the group spoken to was uniquely multinational, multilingual, and they were the Jews of the dispersion from all over the world that were in that city. Therefore, the likelihood that foreign ears would hear a tongue spoken in their language was much greater. On the other hand, in Corinth, though a rather cosmopolitan city, the gift was exercised in a local church with members all sharing a common language, which was Greek. If one had the same diversity of foreigners visiting in Corinth, when all were speaking in different tongues, it would likely that many would hear members of the Corinthian churches speaking in their own tongues, not necessarily the wonderful works of God. Then we come to verses 14 through 36, the proclamation. Now, Peter is setting the foundation. All this is preparation to get to the point that now Peter is going to give the message. The introduction of the power, the speaking of languages, the preparation, the sound of the wind, all those things are preparation and foundation for where Peter is going. 14. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. I'm going to save that part because we're going to go into it a little bit. Then, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he gives another Old Testament quotation that we'll cover. Then verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this very day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, for he himself says, the Lord saith to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And then he concludes, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made both him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter stood and preached to the crowd as a representative of the whole group. And we notice that the speaking in tongues stopped when Peter began to preach. The Holy Spirit was now working through Peter's preaching and would not work against himself through the gift of tongues at the same time. When Peter raised his voice, this was a remarkable change in Peter. He had courage, boldness. It was a complete contrast to the Peter before, who was cowardice and denial of Christ, not only once or twice, but three times. This was Peter being filled. On the day of Pentecost, Peter didn't teach as the rabbis in his day usually did, who gathered disciples around them, sat down, and instructed them with any others who might listen. 
But instead, Peter proclaimed the truth like a herald. And this remarkable sermon had no preparation behind it. It was spontaneously given. Peter didn't wake up that morning knowing he would be preaching to thousands and that thousands would embrace Jesus in response to what he was preaching. Yet we could say that he was well prepared. He had spent three years with Christ. He had seen the mighty works. He had seen what Jesus did. He was learning. He was being taught. This made a dramatic impact. And it flowed spontaneously out of that life and out of the mind that thought and believed deeply. Again, we go back to the Gospel of John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Can you imagine the amount of things that were said during that three-year period of time that the Holy Spirit could bring to the forefront of the mind? But now it's with power. Amazing. John 16, 13 says, However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you of things to come. It's also good to remember that we have in the book of Acts just a small portion of what Peter actually said. Acts 2.40 says, And with many other words he's testified and exhorted them. So like some sermons recorded in the Bible, we have an abridged version of what Peter might have said. But nonetheless as important as whatever Peter said. Peter deflects the mocking criticism that these disciples were drunk reminding them that it was only 9 o'clock in the morning. But this didn't matter to some of them because they didn't understand. We shouldn't think that the Christians were acting as if they were drunk. The idea of being drunk in the Spirit, we've heard that before, has no foundation in God's Word. The comment from the mockers on that day of Pentecost had no basis for reality. The first quote that I didn't read but we'll go over is quoting Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. In a condensed version, it's in the midst of the great outpouring of the Spirit among signs and wonders and speaking in tongues. What did Peter do? Essentially, he said, crowd, let's have a Bible study. Let's go back to what we know. You got to remember there were Jews that were gathered. They knew the Scriptures. Supposedly, they knew the Scriptures. So Peter wants to use that scripture to bring them to this place. Again, using God's word. There are three examples that Peter uses. Joel chapter 2, Psalm 16, 8 and 11, and Psalm 110.1. The quotation from Joel focuses on God's promise to pour out his spirit on all flesh. What happened on that day of Pentecost was a near fulfillment of that promise with the final fulfillment coming in the last days, which Peter had good reason to believe, as we do today. We see things around us falling apart. We see the persecution of the church increasing. I just read this past week that up in Washington, people who want to have foster children have to succumb to teaching LGBTQ things. And if they are unable and unwilling to teach that, they are removed from the list of trying to to sponsor children and because they're Christian. That's how bad it's getting. The focus on God's word did not quench the moving of the Holy Spirit. It fulfilled what the Spirit wanted to do. The quotation from Joel again, is talking about two different times. Joel mostly prophesied about judgment that was coming to ancient Israel. Yet in the midst of many warnings of judgment, God also gave several words of promise, a promise of future blessing like this one that announced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In his writing, Joel says, it shall come in the past, in the last days, 
The idea of the last days is that they are times of the Messiah, encompassing both his humble coming and his return in glory. Because Jesus had already come in humility, they were aware that his return could come at any time. Though there would be some 2,000 years and counting until Jesus' return, until this point, history had been running towards that point. And the final reality of God's kingdom on earth will be realized. It may also be helpful that in the last days, as some, something like a season, a general period of time, more than a specific period, such as a week, in the whole span of God's plan for humanity, we are currently in the season of last days. And as I said, it seems to be coming quicker. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And using the quotation again from Joel, Peter explained what these curious onlookers were witnessing. They were witnessing the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the people. Before the Holy Spirit was given in little drops, but now he is poured out in a different measure. This was an amazing emphasis on Pentecost. Under the old covenant, certain people were filled with with the Spirit at certain times for specific reasons. Under the new covenant, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is for all who call upon the name of the Lord. There had been no provision for, no promise of, an abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of any Old Testament saint. This, however, changes under the new covenant. Peter also used this passage from Joel for an evangelistic purpose. This outpouring of the Holy Spirit meant that God now offered salvation in a way previously unknown when he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, whether Jew or Gentile. It would be some years until the gospel was offered to the Gentiles, yet Peter's sermon announced the gospel invitation by saying, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter's main focus of the sermon, the gospel message of the resurrected Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and yes, his ascension. Verses 22 through 24, again, we look back. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with, all, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. However, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it's not possible for him to decay. But it was enough, because Peter had not yet spoken about the works on Jesus' behalf. Everything until that point had been introduction, explaining the strange things that had just happened, the strange things they had just heard, and the strange things they were witnessing. Now Peter would bring his message. Men of Israel, hear these words. As you yourselves also know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan for knowledge of God. Peter knew that Jesus' death was the plan of God. And at the same time, those who rejected him and called for his execution were responsible for the actions of their lawless hands. Peter did not hesitate in saying, you crucified this man, God sent. His first concern was not to please his audience, but to tell them the truth. The spirit-filled Peter was a different man than the Peter who a few months earlier denied his own Lord. Peter knew that Jesus could not remain bound by death as explaining the following quotation from Psalm 16. It was not possible that Jesus would remain a victim of the sin and the hatred of men that he would certainly triumph over it. In this little phrase, having loosed the pangs of death, in this phrase, the pangs of death, the word pangs, is actually a word for birthing pains. In a sense, the tomb was death, but the resurrection was new birth and new eternal life. 
It was not possible that the chosen one of God should remain in the grip of death. One commentator put it this way, the abyss of death could no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman could hold the child within her ready to give birth. Impossible. The second quote in the book here is Psalm 16, which Peter explains the resurrection of Jesus. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Peter continues in verse 29 and 31. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he was received from the Father and promised Holy Spirit, who has poured out what you now see and now hear. Jesus bore the full wrath of God on the cross as if he was a guilty sinner, guilty of all, all our sin and made sin for us. Yet that work was an act of holy, gracious love on our behalf so that Jesus himself didn't become a sinner even though he bore the full guilt of our sin. This is the gospel message that Jesus took our punishment for sin on the cross and remained a perfect savior through the whole ordeal, proven by his resurrection. If we did not have a resurrection, there would be no proof that Jesus was successful. Because Jesus bore our sin without becoming a sinner, he remained the Holy One even in his death. Since it is incomprehensible that God's Holy One should be bound by death, the resurrection was absolutely inevitable. Instead of being punished for his glorious work on the cross, Jesus was rewarded as prophetically described in this psalm. Again, David is buried. David is dead. This Jesus is not buried. He is not dead. We are all witnesses to this. As I spoke last week, in the 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus appeared many times to many people through those 40 days. Paul writes in Corinthians that he appeared to over 500 at one time. So we have evidence. And a lot of those people were still alive at that point of time. So if there was any question, they could always point and say, go talk to so-and-so, go talk to so-and-so. They've seen him. They've been there. There was no question in their minds at this time that truly Jesus was resurrected. Psalm 110, verse 1 says, For David did not ascend into heaven. Now we get to that part. But he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord. I don't know if your uh, versions have it or translations. You have the Lord in capitals and the second Lord in small. That is the Father saying about the Son. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Both Lord and Messiah. If you remember, as we look back again in the book of Matthew chapter 27, Verse 54 says, When the centurion, those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. And what did they say? Truly this was the Son of God. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know. And the sermon concludes with a summary. Simply, 
all Israel should know that even though they crucified Jesus, God has declared him both Lord and Savior. It's as, it's as if Peter said, you were all wrong about Jesus. You crucified him as a criminal, but he was resurrected. God proved to you that he is Lord and Messiah. And when Peter exhorts them, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is little doubt who the Lord is that he is speaking about. This whole gospel message points to Jesus. There can be no misunderstanding of who Peter is talking about. It's clear, so there shouldn't be any confusion. We have the expectation of what they were hearing and seeing. The life of Jesus and testimony of his ministry. The divine Messiah revealed and authenticated by his resurrection. Now we get to the point of the pronouncement, 37 to 42. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God has called to himself. And with many words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received this word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now when they heard this, verse 37, we revisit, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? Without hesitation, with no mincing of words, without any eloquation, Peter said, repent and be baptized. Two things. The first is the primary. The first is the primary. This was obviously a significant work and power through the Holy Spirit. The great crowd listening to Peter was so deeply moved by Peter's bold proclamation of that truth, they could not deny the evidences presented. They could not the deny the word that was given. They could not deny their sin any longer. Their response was, what do we do? It's wrong to think that Peter offered no kind of invitation or challenge for his listeners to respond. Peter clearly did exhort them to respond and invited his listeners to change. The response of the crowd also helps us put the events of the day and Pentecost into perspective. Now we might hear God's truth. We might hear the gospel message. But it may not carry the weight that it did then. This is only 50 days after the resurrection. Crucifixion, resurrection, okay? 40 days, 10 days, Boom. This is within the time frame of people's memories of what happened. They could recall probably exactly what went on. When Peter addressed them, addressed them, the conviction of the truth of God's word convicted their hearts because of what they were, what they knew, what they participated in, what they remembered, what they'd been told. And it cut them. This is a good way to describe the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They now knew that they were responsible for the death of Jesus. As each of us are. Are we not? We are sinners. If it wasn't for our sin, Christ wouldn't have to go to the cross. But because we are sinners, 
Christ paid that price. And they needed to respond in the same way, but they didn't know how. That's the question. See, the word is the sword of the spirit. The cutting is the real heart surgery that all sinners need. When the resurrected Jesus changed Peter's life, and when the power of the Holy Spirit came upon him, he was much more effective as he was cutting hearts with the truth and testimony of what happened than any other type. The reality of their participation in opening their hearts to the very one they rejected. This is what Peter could do in the power of the Holy Spirit, doing God's best with the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. And we know from Hebrews 4.12 tells us, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When God is working on someone's heart, they want to come to him. They don't want to run away. It's been said that in normal seasons of Christian work, the evangelist usually seeks the sinner. Yet, however, in times of revival or great awakenings, things change. The sinner seeks the evangelist. In this day of Pentecost, in Acts 2, was one of those great seasons of God's work. People driven to God through the power of the Spirit. And Peter said, repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Christ, and you shall receive the promise. In a response, what shall we do? Peter must have been amazed to see what God had done in this situation. Instead of people wanting to crucify him because he was a follower of Christ, because of that, Jesus changed those people's hearts. The Holy Spirit worked through Peter and thousands of people wanted to trust in the Messiah that they once previously yelled, crucify. The word repent appears eight different times in the book of Acts. I would say it's probably a major theme in the book of Acts. Acts 2, 38. Acts 3, 19. Acts 5, 31. Acts 8, 32. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord, if possible, in the intent of your heart, you may be forgiven. Acts eleven thirty two. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And the, they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles and God, God also Grant them repentance that leads to life. Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The time we live in is the time of ignorance God is overlooking and says, no, not anymore. You can't claim ignorance. I don't know if you've heard the saying, but may have mentioned before, the ignorant are ignorant of their ignorance. You know, yeah, there's a quote by MacArthur, which when you think about it, makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Now one can repent, and this is Second Peter chapter, or chapter 3, verse 9. One can repent, no one can repent unless God grants repentance. All of salvation, including repentance and faith, is a result of God drawing us opening our eyes, and changing our hearts. God's long-suffering leads us to repentance. And following that act of repentance, he says, be baptized. Now, we think of baptism as an outward sign of an inward commitment, which why we have the baptismal here. But you have to remember in that day, in that culture, those Jews who were being baptized was extremely difficult. Some of them lost their business because of it. Some of them lost family members because of it. They were going against the grain, but they were so committed to what they heard, they were willing to make a proclamation personally to say, I believe that. I accept that. I trust that. 
regardless of the outcome, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the consequences. How many of us in this room have been baptized and had family members watch us and be totally against us, but I'll come. Out of respect for you, I'll be there, but totally against it. Or I remember when I baptized my mom here in this, she had many friends here with her. And they kept telling her, Dolores, you've already been baptized. She says, yeah, but not like this. They, they couldn't understand, but you were baptized already. She says, yeah, but this is real. This is my, my decision to tell the world what I believe. And they thought she was crazy. I mean, not crazy, but they thought, no, she's gone around the bend. But when people make a public announcement like that, What they're saying is, I believe. Now, baptism doesn't remove sin. We know that. It's just an outward sign of that inward commitment of the work that God has done in your heart. That time of repentance, that only comes from God. And this promise that it says, the promise is to you and your children and all who fear or all who are far off. It represents the demonstration of faith and obedience The gift of the Holy Spirit would be given to them as it's given to the original group of disciples. Peter was saying that now the door is open. Now repentance can be for everyone who believes. Now the Holy Spirit can come for this generation, the next generation, and our generation 2,000 years removed from that time. They were witnessing the glorious work of the Holy Spirit. And they were amazed. It's important to note that Peter did not say that unbelieving or unaware people or children of the listeners should be baptized. He was simply saying that the promise, the remission of sins, the gift of the Spirit were for all who would repent and believe with active faith, even to the future generations. Spurgeon says, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved is meant for you, is meant for your children, is meant for everybody to whom the Lord's call is addressed. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them. And he encouraged them, be saved from this perverse generation. Boy, it's as true then as it is now. We live in a society that is deteriorating before our very eyes. And if there's any time that we need a regeneration, it's now. Not only in the hearts of believers, but we need to take that message like Peter did to those who don't. We need to understand that that early church on the day of Pentecost saw an amazing harvest. A church of about 120 people gathered up in the upper room added 3,000 to that 120. Think of how those 3,000 people touched lives from that day forward. Many of the 3,000 were undoubtedly pilgrims who came to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, as I said before. They expected something special from God, but not anything like this. Many in this crowd went back to their homes, traveling far from Jerusalem, taking this good news that they had just experienced and committed their lives to, to those around them. Those who believed on that day did so gladly, even by making that statement of baptism, like I said. How could you baptize 3,000 people, you might say? There were huge resources of water available around the Temple Mount, pools and reservoirs nearby. So it wouldn't be difficult to find a place to baptize. But remember, they're in sight of everybody around them. They were a focal point. Their baptism was a focal point of all who were seeing. They were making a statement. And finally, the life of these first believers, the people of salvation... It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Well, let's take a look at these people of salvation. It says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. On the day of Pentecost, the sound of the rushing wind, the tongues of fire, and the conversion of over 3,000 were all remarkable events. But these things described in Acts 2.42 is the abiding legacy of God's work. Remember I talked last week about a legacy? Or about a, uh, not a legacy, ancestry. We are that. Our church is that, of this first church. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. What does that mean? It means this was a biblical church. They relied on the apostles to communicate the truths that they knew, that Jesus had given them insight through the Holy Spirit. And now they trusted in Jesus and they wanted to grow and learn more. That's the thing about, I talked many weeks ago, about a profession and possession. When you possess Christ, you're hungry. You desire God's word. You want to know more about God's word. You can't have possession without that desire. You can profess all you want and go about your merry way, but you don't possess. There's nothing that can keep you from that if you're a believer. The Greek word here, steadfast, means single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. There was no departure from the apostles' doctrine because it was the truth of God. Thankfully, God allows us to sit under the Apostles' Doctrine, the New Testament record, which is God's Word. And we are committed, as you know, here at Grace, to continue that teaching. Then they continued steadfastly in fellowship. This was a sharing church. The ancient Greek word, as many of us have heard, is koinonia. It has the idea of the association and communion of getting together, participating with one another, sharing with each other. The Christian life is meant to be full of fellowship, of sharing. We share the same Lord Jesus, don't we? We share the same guide, his word. We share the same love for God. We share the same desire to worship him. We share the same struggles. We also share the same victories. We share the same life of living for him. And we share the same joy of proclaiming the gospel. They also continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. This was a Christ-centered church. Even living so close to the time when Jesus was crucified, they still never wanted to forget what he did on the cross. And that's why we celebrate once a month our communion service. We never want to forget what Jesus did on our behalf. And they continued steadfastly in prayer. This was also a praying church. Whenever God wants to accomplish something, it's a good time for prayer to seek his wisdom, his direction, his guidance. Everything else we read about the power and the glory of that early church flows from the foundation of this word. Our church, this church, endures standing on these four pillars of the first church. From 3,000 3, souls that day to millions, maybe even billions of souls from that day to this and counting and counting. I close with this. Many years ago, a book was written that I really enjoyed reading. It was called, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? Think about that. Just that title. What if Jesus had never been born? 
D. James Kennedy, a famous preacher and pastor at Coral Ridge in Florida and founder of Evangelism Explosion, writes, Despite its humble beginnings, the church has made more changes on earth than any other movement or force since the beginning of time. Hospitals, education, government, charitable organizations, civilizing primitive cultures, health, family values, establishing standards of morality, and much more. If Jesus had never been born, there would be no reason for these. But Christian men and women, guided by the Holy Spirit, committed to Christ, started these institutions. Many of our Ivy League schools that we have today were established to train up pastors. What are they doing now? They're tearing down anything that's godly. We are part of that legacy I talked about last week. We have been given the greatest gift known to all humanity. As Peter so eloquently proclaimed, it's the gift of the gospel. It's the gift of Christ's life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his glorification on his ascension. This Jesus of Nazareth was truly the Son of God. May we proclaim the same message and watch what the Holy Spirit can do in the hearts of those who hear His calling from His Word by His Spirit. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Thank You, Lord, that we have just the foundation that you so powerfully established back in the early church. Lord, may we continue in that vein to be faithful to the teaching of your word, to the fellowship of one another, to the breaking of bread and the recognizing of your death on our behalf, and your resurrection, and for prayer. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning that has that cutting of heart, not through my words, but through your word, that they're asking themselves, what should I do? And I, like Peter, say, repent. Change your mind. Change your way of thinking. Surrender yourself to the only one who can save you from this corrupt world. If there's anybody here who understands that they are sinners in need of that forgiveness, the only place they can go to is at the foot of the cross. So I pray, Lord, that if there be anybody and listening my voice, that you were calling to that place, that they would not hesitate, for today is the day of salvation. May you grant them that repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand.